0: remain standing, the scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, uh, verse 24 through 29. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. And please be seated. It is the year 2009, and I am entering into the most interesting ecclesiastical meeting I have ever been in. The church that the Lord has given to my shepherding is leaving the PCUSA. We are the first church to leave in that wave, and we have been called to a meeting with the presbytery to, quote, discuss this, but it's not going to be a discussion at all. It's actually going to be almost like a mob violence. The building is filled with uh, old white-haired women, because, quite frankly, that's what the presbytery was basically made up of. And uh, this was not dispassionate at all. This was a group of very angry people, one of which got in my face and said, just who do you think you are? It's an interesting question. She didn't really want my self-identity. She was asking the question, we do things here in liberal Christianity a certain way, and you are doing it totally differently. Who gave you the authority to do that? What makes you think that you're anything special, that you can tell us what true religion should be? Who do you think you are? Well, I did have an answer for that. I was a Reformed minister, and the clue is in the name. If you are a Reformed minister, you want to see the Church of Jesus Christ Reformed. You want to see it Reformed to God's Word. You want to see it living according to the pattern that God has given. And I wasn't just anybody. I had been ordained to care for the Church of Jesus Christ, I was just doing what honestly I was. I was a reformed minister. I was reforming the church. That's who I thought I was. Our Lord Christ here is in a similar context. You will notice that we read not a huge amount uh, for the scripture reading this morning. We usually have quite a bit more. Uh, Jesus is mid-discussion with a group of people who are not particularly happy with him. If you go back to how this discussion began, it goes back to the, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. You've got a man who's been lame for forever. Christ heals him, and people are extremely mad about it because it was done on the Sabbath, just who does Jesus of Nazareth think he is? Well, actually, the Lord Christ throughout this chapter is going to answer them, who do I think I am? Well, last Lord's Day, we saw Christ say, I'm divine. And it's kind of hard to top that. He very clearly says to them, uh, what right do I have to live out the Sabbath differently than your tradition? Well, being that I'm of a divine nature, I can probably do that. But building on that, he moves into the question of who he is concerning them. They are a hostile audience. They are extremely mad. And in fact, we've already been told because of this healing at the pool, because of a good deed, uh, they will seek to kill him from this point on in the gospel. They they will be that hostile to our Lord. But our Lord to them is the only possibility of life they can have. Stepping off of his divine nature, in these verses, our Lord begins to deal with the issue of life. If you look at the various verses we just read through, Look at how many times Christ talks about life or death or resurrection. Uh, He is putting himself as the only possibility they have for life. Verse 24 reads, "I I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. That's the theme. The term "life" here is very interesting. There are three terms in the Greek New Testament that are often translated as "life," but they're not exactly synonyms. Uh, you have the Greek word "bios," which means your body is functioning. You, you, you've been bo- you, you've been created in the womb. Your biological systems are taking place. You're not physically dead. Uh, bios is kind of an important thing to be, but every human being has it. Every human being who hasn't died, anyway. There is also the term suke, which is translated life every now and then. Uh, we get sukeology from it, psychology from it. Uh, this is, you're alive in the sense that you have an inner person and in you're thinking. Again, this is a life that everyone who isn't dead yet has. Jesus doesn't use that term in this passage. He doesn't use bios in this passage. The term he uses is Zoe. If you've ever met a, a girl by the name of Zoe, well, this is where that name comes from. And not everybody has this kind of life. Uh, Just reading from the Biblical dictionary, this is what Zoe is. That inextinguishable and indestructible quality that is self-existent in God and shared with animate creation, God's gift to man animating him both physically and spiritually, making him an eternal being. The absolute fullness of life, Which belongs to God. This is the same term which Jesus will use when he says, I have come to give them life and to give them life abundant. Not everybody has this. When the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you he made alive who were once dead in transgressions and sins, uh, he's talking about Zoe. Everybody in Ephesus had been biologically alive. Everybody had had an inner thought life. But without the Lord Christ, that abundant life, that being actually alive, they don't have that. And so Christ begins to say to these people, if you want to have a life that you can call life, if you want to have a life worth living in a spiritual sense, if you want to actually be alive to God, well, that's what I am in relation to you. If you want to have life, I'm it. Verse 24 is extremely important to the understanding of what some call the doctrine of eternal security. I don't necessarily like using that term because a number of things get tossed into that pot, some of which are true and some of which are not. I once heard a Baptist minister preaching, and to quote, he said, God saves to the uttermost, a man who is saved is saved. Brethren, I want you to know that if I were to die of a heart attack in the arms of another man's wife tonight, I know that I am on my way to eternal heaven because Jesus Christ has paid for me with his blood. And I remember thinking, I don't think I want my wife to be anywhere near you. Um, That's not biblical. That's not godly. But there is a biblical teaching of eternal security, and verse 24 is about the best proclamation of what it is that I can think of. Christ speaking says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. As you know, I'm not a language expert. I never claimed to be one. I do know how to use the cheats. I've gotten very good at that. And using those and going into that verse, I found some kind of interesting things. The the verb about hearing and the verb about believing are in the Greek tense that talk about a perpetual action. This is something you don't just do once, but it's the pattern of your life. You can see it taking place over the long haul. So Christ says, he who hears an ongoing process, he who believes ongoing process, has what he's about to talk about next. And what he talks about next is... um, They shall not do something. Rather, something else has happened. This is not a verse that defends the person in the parable of the sower who is the shallow soil. There is a type of person in that parable where the seed doesn't really find purchase, but it's on this very shallow soil, rock underneath it, You get a burst of fruit out of it, but it's not really fruit. It dies away very quickly. It was as if it never was because it really wasn't. Uh, This verse is not about a person like that. And I think that we've all seen people like that. They hear the word of God. uh, They get excited perhaps at a revival meeting or whatnot. Uh, They're extremely excited about religion for about two weeks and then pass on to their next thing uh, this verse isn't about them it's about those who walk the walk and you can see that but if they walk the walk you can be sure that something has happened this walking of the walk is evidence that the thing has happened and what has happened is that uh, they have and in the Greek, it's exactly like in English, they possess something. They have everlasting life. They won't come into judgment. The reason for that is because they have, quote, passed from death into life. And here you have the Greek verb tense, which is called the perfect tense. And it's a beautiful thing that Greek has that English doesn't. It's a verb tense that talks about A activity that has happened that changes everything that happens after it. If you were to talk about the American Revolution using Koine Greek, you could use this term and say the Boston Tea Party happened. Well, you're not just saying it took place, but you're saying it did take place, and literally everything after that is affected by it. A change has happened. Well, the Lord is talking about the life he can give. And he says those who believe, those who hear, a change has happened in them. They have passed from death into life. There's no way for them to experience death anymore because they've been totally separated from it. This belief, this hearing, um, it gives them eternal so a BIOS is not eternal uh, if, if the Lord tarries there will be some time where you're not living biologically uh, suke is at uh, the the whim the, the of life and death as well but so is eternal life spiritual life it is remaining you in a blissful estate in the hands of God if you believe, and if you hear, then that belongs to you eternally. You will be alive in God. He will give you the life worth living, and it's because something has happened and there's no going back to it. This pattern, by the way, is not unique to this passage. Uh, There's a reference that works just the exact same way in Hebrews, and there's one in Colossians Since they both work the same way, I chose just to use one, but in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, we read, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, same same verb tense, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The exact same thing is happening there. Uh, if you are walking the walk, if you're living the life that Sole actually produces you can be assured that an event has happened in the past that there's no going back from that is Christ has reconciled you you have been reconciled to the Father, you can know it it's not rooted in what you do, but what you do is evidence that it's happened and that is extremely important there is a there is a stream of thought in Protestantism that disconnects walking as Jesus walked from salvation. And it's usually put in very pious terms. It's when when you're, you're wondering if you're saved, don't look to your good works. Rather, look to the cross of Christ. There on the cross, you see the love of the Savior. There on the cross, you know that God has reconciled you. Don't look to your works. Look only to the cross. There is some partial truth to that. Honestly, there is. Uh, When you are truly doubting your salvation when it's darkest, do look to the cross. The cross is an objective statement of God's love and reconciliation. But all the way through the New Testament, we're told that uh, this reconciliation produces a new you. That's the evidence that you've been reconciled. The Puritans talked about the sin of presumption. And what they meant by that was people who with their mouth would say, I'm a saved person, and they can talk religiously. But then that doesn't translate into any outer action. Well, they're presuming they're saved, but they're not. And that actual presumption is a sin in itself. This verse does not lend itself to the sin of presumption, but it does... Tell us of the absolute security of the believer, the believer and quote, the one who hears. We are very familiar with belief or faith because those are the same word. Uh, It's putting your absolute trust in Christ and nothing else. It is not trusting your works or sacraments or anything, just trusting in Christ Himself. But here Christ adds a wrinkle to it, he who hears. What does he mean by that? If you are a parent, I am absolutely positive you have found yourself looking into an impudent face while you're giving a lecture. And you have said, do you hear me, young man? Well, yes, he he does physically. He hears you. You're shouting. But the question is, does he really hear you? Does he understand the implication of what you're saying? Is it sinking in? Is it having effects? What you're really saying is, have you heard me to the point where you're not going to color on the wall again? Well, that is effectively what Christ is saying here. He who believes and really hears me at that level. I am sometimes amazed at the very cavalier attitude worldly people have to Jesus the Christ. If you leave the comfort of Christian circles and you go out into the world, you may hear the name of Christ, maybe even very often but it is mentioned in a non-honoring way. It's mentioned in a way that shows people have no fear of him, no worship of him, no reverence of him. Uh, A saved person recoils in horror in that because this is God himself in the flesh. This is the only possibility of life anyone can have. Uh, How can you speak of him in such a cavalier way? Well, the answer is, there's been no change. Uh, There is no actual hearing of him. They've heard him, but they haven't heard him. But those who do hear him, uh, they're the ones that belief takes hold in, and they are transformed. You'll notice, by the way, that Christ, even here, he has not left the theme of his divine nature. He says, those who hear me and believe him who sent me. Now, how can he talk that way? Well, he can only talk that way if he's saying, my words are synonymous with the One who sent me. I am speaking the very words of God. That is a bold claim, but not for the one who is God the Word. He says, your belief in me is belief in God. And that's pretty important to his hearers, because if you had asked them, do you have faith in God, they would have told you, yes, this is a group of people who are in the visible church, they are the Jews of the first century, they would have considered themselves believers in God, because if you go back into the Old Testament, the term faith shows up there a lot. They would have known that to be in the covenant, you have faith. But Christ ties the covenant to him, his very self. He says, when I speak, I am speaking for God. I am speaking as God. Uh, if you have faith in God, you have faith in me. If you hear me, you hear God. Uh, the divining line is Christ, and he is claiming to be not something new to the Old Testament. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of the covenant they have. He is the word of God from God. Um he is also the resurrection of the dead. Having spoken of eternal life, eternal life worth living, eternal perpetual self-existence, he then begins to talk about raising the dead, and in uh, verse 25 through 27, he seems to be talking about something very present, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." His audience knew that a resurrection from the dead was coming. One only has to turn to the last chapter of Daniel, or to several of the Psalms, and you will see the Hebrew Scriptures talk about the dead being raised. And he will talk about a future raising of the dead in verse 28 and 29, but here he is talking about something happening right now. The hour is coming, and it is right now. So it's going to be something that's going to be ongoing, but you are experiencing it right now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. His detractors could not have missed that there weren't any graves popping open at this moment. So he must be talking about a death which isn't that kind of death. He's talking about dead people who can hear with their ears, but those who really hear him will live. He is talking about the people who are around him. They are, in fact, dead. I think sometimes we lose sight of that reality. We dwell as people who God has given true and abundant life among people who are literally the walking dead. They have bios, they have suke, but they don't have real life. They are functionally dead, spiritually dead. Uh, Life only comes if they hear the Son of God, and if they don't hear the Son of God, they are dead men. And in dealing with an unbeliever, that's something you truly need to know. You look at the unbeliever and you say, why does he not get this? Well, as a pastor, I have done many funerals, and at a funeral, you talk with a lot of people, but the one person you don't really talk to is the guy that the party is about, because he doesn't have a lot of say in the matter. He is totally insensate, to everything going on around him. The one person you can guarantee who will not attend your funeral is you, because you'll be dead. You won't be hearing. You won't be seeing. It will be totally alien to you, even though everything around you is life, even though people are talking about what a great person you are, and they're lying about how lifelike you look, and they're remembering only the the good parts of your life. You won't experience any of that because you're dead. Well, Christ says an hour is coming where the dead will hear the Son of God. He's talking about the inbreaking of God into the world with himself. Uh, the dead have heard the word of God before this. If you go back into the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, people have been trusting in God's promises before Christ came into the world. But the coming of Christ into the world is an opening of a... Uh, a floodgate of the grace of God like the world has never experienced, and it's a resurrection from the dead for people who would not have been raised otherwise. Back before the coming of Christ, you have a trickle of people that the Old Testament talks about who ended up having faith in God who might be a Syrian, or they might be a Moabite, or they might be something else. But now with Christ coming into the world, the hour has come that you will see a resurrection like nobody's business. There will be people who would never have heard, never have been converted. Now the gospel is going to go out into all the world, and Christ compares this time with the coming resurrection. Just like in the future, the graves are going to open and people are going to live again in their body Uh, A miracle just as great as that is happening, Christ has come into the world, and he is raising the dead. But not everybody is going to hear him. His detractors are not going to hear him. In fact, as this uh, sermon of his goes on, they're going to increase their hostility. What is up with that? Well, if I were a if I were an Armenian, I would tell you, well, Christ raises the dead, but it's only really those who choose to hear Him. Uh, so, you know, these people are not choosing to hear Him. Listen again to what Christ says about this first resurrection of the dead. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. So. The father is a reservoir of life. The son is just as much. And then you'll notice there's a comma. This is the continuation of the sentence. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. So what is the context of his judgment? What is the context of his authority? Well, it's the coming to life of people. He is talking about the resurrection of spiritual life, and he doesn't finish his thought without saying, the authority for all of this is in my hand. And not only that, there is judgment being worked at people coming to life or not coming to life. And we are not talking about the graves being opened yet. We are talking about this moment, people living in the world, hearing the gospel, being transformed by it or not being transformed by it, why is there a distinction? Well, authority and judgment has been given to Christ. Those who hear will live. Who are the ones that will hear? It is those whom Christ, executing his authority and judgment, give to hear. The worldling thinks that If he does not believe in Christ, if he doesn't submit to Christ, he is rebelling against God. He is defiantly putting his chin out to God and saying, I'm not going to do your will. I am going to oppose you. I'm going to fight you. Actually, there's been a whole spate of uh, cinematic movies in the last 10 years where that's been the theme, where man boldly resist God because the gods need being opposed the Bible presents those who won't repent as God manifesting his judgment against them in the very fact they won't repent they don't believe but they cannot believe Christ has executed his judgment and those who don't believe don't believe because of his choice because of his authority because of his will He has tied that here in a very tight knot. This is Christ speaking, and he says, those who listen, they listen because of my authority and my judgment. He is Lord of the first resurrection. That term is used in Scripture elsewhere. It is in the very famous passage about the millennium in Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, one wonders if uh, Christ speaking here of a present and then a future resurrection might throw some light onto that. In Revelation we read, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. In general evangelical settings, this passage is used to speak of two physical resurrections. There will be a resurrection of the dead of the martyrs. They will reign for a literal thousand years. Then you'll have the uh, rest of the resurrection. But the only problem with that is that it says, Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. Well, what is the second death? Well, the second death, as Revelation will go on to say directly, is when death and hell get tossed into the lake of fire. It is eternal damnation. So if you have a second resurrection, but blessed are those in the first resurrection because the second death will have no power over them, you are saying, well, those at the second revelation, the second, the second resurrection, uh, the second death will have power over them the way you're interpreting it, which doesn't seem very hopeful. It doesn't seem to match the vision. Historically, Christians have seen the reference to the Lord Christ's reign and to the first resurrection as what happens in this life now. Earlier, talking with Anthony, we were actually talking about post-millennialism and what that means. Uh, Anthony said that we're the first church uh, confessionally that he's ever encountered that is confessionally postmillennial. Sorry to hear that, actually, but actually, I'm glad it's us. Um, Christ reigns; he reigns over living people. He has brought them to life now, and they live and they reign in the midst of their enemies. Uh, Christ calls them to himself as his willing servants, and they come because they're alive. If you noticed in the psalm we sang as we came in, it's a psalm of the kingship of Christ, and there's a line in it where on the day of his power, his servants will willingly commit themselves to him, and then you will have a conflict, and the king will emerge victorious. Historically, Christians have said that's what the thousand years is about. It's a vision. It is a symbol in a vision. It is the reign of Christ ruling through the living in Christ right now. And it is the vision of Christ's kingdom expanding. That the thousand years is happening for you and me right now, but it's not happening for the world. We are living in Christ's kingdom because we have been brought to life now. The rest of the dead are awaiting the second resurrection. That's the resurrection of the body, and we all going to be there. We're all going to be resurrected from the ground physically. Our spirit will be reconnected with our bodies. But there are people who will be raised at the second resurrection who have never actually been raised spiritually. Body and spirit will be reunited, but that's not exactly good news if you haven't been made alive now, because you'll be just as dead then as you are now. You'll be body and soul again, but you're body and soul now, and without the grace of Christ giving you life, you're dead, and it's not metaphorical. It's a very, very real estate you're in, and if you move into the second resurrection and you're still dead, you're still dead. Christ is speaking here of a life worth living that is eternal. And he is who gives it. Which means that if you have any sort of eternal life in eternity, uh, the only life worth having is going to have come from the hand of Christ. You're facing eternal death otherwise. He then says, don't be amazed at this. And he says, don't be amazed at it because there is coming the second resurrection. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Uh, He says, "Don't, don't be shocked at the fact that this first resurrection takes place. Because let's face it, the resurrection of the dead is going to be a manifestation of God's power like nobody's business. And if that's going to happen, why would you be shocked at this? But the big question is, why would he have to talk about them being shocked? Well, the answer is, when you're dead and everybody around you is dead, you kind of assume deadness. It's the world you move in. Uh, you're dead, but you don't notice it because your neighbor's dead and your family's dead and your coworkers are dead. And you do things that the walking dead do because that's normal. What happens if someone comes to life in your midst? Well, you're going to marvel because that person is going to be so different. Life is going to stand out from deadness in a way it can't be missed. And effectively, the ultimate uh, life in the middle of deadness is the Lord Christ right now standing in the middle of religious people who are mad at him for being what God made him to be. He, He is the reconciler of the world. He is God in flesh. You don't get more life than that. Here he is, and he stands out among them so much, they're murderously angry at him. no man will be greater than his teacher. It is effectively a condemnation of the dead around him and at the way they are reacting to seeing life, but mark my words, the dead have not changed in 2,000 years. When living people are among them, when Christ has given them life, and life abundant, and that life has started in this biological life now, those things which we who are alive would see and say, this is beautiful, this is good, this is noble, this is heroic, the dead look at it and they marvel. They are shocked by it, even to the point of hostility. And Christ says, don't marvel, because God's power can change people. God's power can make life come from the dead. Uh, There is no reason to marvel at this. Don't you worship the all-powerful God? Well, the truth is, the dead don't. But Christ is putting it in their face that they don't. These religious people would have given lip service to the almighty nature of God, but now that they see what God is doing in their midst, they don't want to have anything to do with it. It is amazing how reality will shock us from our hypocrisies. If you have ever read the, uh, the Space Trilogy written by C.S. Lewis, in the second book, uh, Paralandra, my favorite part of the whole series is right at the beginning, Lewis puts himself in, uh, in the story. The main character is a guy by the name of Ransom, but it starts off with Ransom coming to Lewis's house, and he wants Lewis's help with going to Saturn. And uh, there is an angel in Lewis's house waiting to take Ransom to Saturn. And Lewis writes, When I saw this creature, this holy other thing, This truly righteous thing, I was shocked in my spirit and everything about me wanted to get out of its presence immediately. I had always thought I was good and on the side of the angels until I met one. And then I realized how alien goodness and life is to me. When God has a hold of you, and he is working through you, now I'm not saying when you're good, because quite frankly, in you there is no good thing, but when you belong to Christ, there is the infinitely good thing in you, which is him. When you bear Christ out into the world, the dead will marvel. But they shouldn't. God spoke reality into existence. Goodness will shock. And the only goodness is Christ. Christ will give life to whom he will. Those who believe and hear will have life. And his words make no room for any other way for life to come. You cannot listen to Christ's words and say, well, Christ is a savior, but there are other ways to God. Now you may be saying, well, no duh, I know that. You are in a very small minority. Going back to 2009, uh, what what had prompted us to leave the PCUSA was not what the world thought it was. At the General Assembly that year, there was on the table of uh, an overture to approve gay marriage and uh, you know gay people being in the pulpit and that sort of thing. And when the news media descended on us, their first question was, "Are you leaving the PCUSA over gay issues?" They were shocked when we told them no. Now, we weren't for that at all, but there were a couple other things that had showed up at that General Assembly, Uh, one of which was they were changing the language of worshiping God in their liturgy so that you didn't have to call God Father, Son, Holy Spirit anymore. There was like a plethora of things you could call him, Uh, my favorite of which was Mother, Child, and Womb, I mean, that that really hits about as blasphemous as it can get. But even beyond that blasphemy, there was a quiet overture on the floor, which passed, which said, we are the people of God redeemed through Christ, and he is our Savior, but he is not the only Savior of the world. That made no news. No reporter came and asked me about it but that's what we were leaving about because everything else is symptomatic. Jesus Christ is the only source of life. These people ask him, who do you think you are? And Jesus looks back at them and says, I'm God and I'm the only source of life for you. The flesh doesn't want to hear that. And the flesh generally doesn't. When those who consider themselves evangelicals are questioned, you want to guess what the percentage is of people who say Jesus is the only way to life in the Father? It's not high. That is simple Christianity. Because Christianity is exclusive. The only life that can be found is in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. The only, the only way of salvation is to hope in Christ and nothing else. And yet, the flesh would like many paths to God. Of course it would. But God has extended one path, and it is through the Christ. And the Christ looks at us when we ask him, just who do you think you are? And he says, I am your only hope for life. There is no other. Unchanged, we be the